Let's bow our heads in prayer before we uh, open God's word. Father God, as we open up the pages of the Bible, we pray, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding, that we would both understand what you have written in this account in Judges, but more than that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak through that account into our lives to help us where we are currently in our present walk and relationship and to give us food to nourish us and sustain us as we go through into this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, can you open up your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Judges and chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, and we're going to be doing the whole chapter this morning. Sunday morning, when I'm teaching through the Bible, we're going through the book of Judges. And um, this morning, uh, we're looking at the life of Abimelech. Abimelech, the Bramble King, a rather dark chapter in the history of Israel, but not one without lessons for us to learn. So after defeating the Midianite oppressors, Gideon, also known as Jerubbabel, retired to Ophrah, and there he judged the nation for the rest of his days. And the people had came, come to Gideon uh, and said, rule over us. Uh, they wanted to make him king and to establish a dynasty from his family where his children would succeed him as king. But Gideon declined the offer and said, the Lord shall rule over you, which is exactly the way it should be. Unfortunately, Gideon's actions did not match his words, and he amassed riches and wives and a lifestyle befitting a king. So, And he also failed to direct the people to the Lord, who he said shall rule over you. Instead, he led them away from the tabernacle and into a place of idolatry. To understand more about what I'm speaking about, please refer to my last talk on the decline of Gideon. But at the end of chapter 8, we read in verses 33 to 35. And it was so, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the prostitute with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. And this, sadly, was Gideon's legacy. He left Israel free from Midian, but enslaved to Baal. And so he freed them from their uh, human oppressors, but he left them in a worse state spiritually. And what a sad legacy to leave behind. And this legacy will prove the fertile ground from which a man named Abimelech will rise a man with no morality, a man with no fear of God, a man who would prove to be a dictator and a destructive force in the land. Now, the book of Judges is an account of the history of Israel from the death of Joshua to the time of the first king of Israel. It is a time that is characterised by a nation that gradually departs from their God and his covenant, a nation in spiritual and moral decline, and a nation that only calls on God in a superficial way, i.e. when they're in trouble. And when I think about this, this could be a picture of our nation. Because after all, we are a nation that has departed from God. We are a nation that is, that is in spiritual and moral decline. And we are a nation 
with only a superficial relationship with God at the very best. And this should concern us because it is into a nation with this climate of apostasy that a selfish, proud, aggressive, corrupt, murdering dictator emerges. And if Abimelech can happen then, Abimelech can happen now. It is the same environment. And so we are ripe for a dictator to emerge. And what's more, we know that this will happen in the future when Antichrist comes. So let's start by reading verses one to six, the rise of Abimelech. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them, with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in their hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the seventy sons of Jeroboam, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So we read in um, these verses that Gideon had 70 sons and these sons were born to him from many wives. But Abimelech is unique among the sons because he was born to Gideon from a concubine from Shechem. And Shechem was a Canaanite city. So here we see that um, Abimelech is half Hebrew and half Canaanite. And this was an abominable, abominable and a forbidden thing. Moses had said in Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 to 4, speaking of the Canaanites, uh, you shall, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Now, um, the word of God is clear that intermarriage with the Canaanites would bring sudden destruction from God. And Gideon's departure from the word of God will bring that destruction through the offspring Abimelech. And the children of a concubine held a far lower social status than the children of a wife. In fact, so low was the status that Abimelech probably had little or no contact with his father, Gideon. Thus, the strongest influence on his life was his Canaanite mother and her, her and her people, the Canaanites. And this could have well given rise to something of an identity crisis within Abimelech as he grew up. Am I a Hebrew, the son of the great man Gideon, or am I a Canaanite, the long term enemy of the Hebrews? Is my purpose or destiny to succeed my father and become a, a leader of men or is my destiny to be killed by the Israelites. And you can imagine this conflict within him as he grew up and this identity crisis. 
and eventually Abimelech placed a greater value in his Canaanite blood than his Hebrew blood, it would seem. But this came to call to mind the fact that people today, uh, many people today, are going through an identity crisis themselves. People question their place and their purpose in the world. Who am I? Why am I here? What do I believe? What is my role in society? How can I make a difference? And this, as they wrestle with these issues, it's never more evident than in young adults, people in their teens and their 20s, I believe. And hungry for purpose and identity, people question their sexuality and their gender, and they try to place their identity in an alternative gender or alternative sexuality. Or they experiment with drugs, alcohol and alternative lifestyles, trying to find an identity. They might attach themselves to some global cause. Or conversely, they might sink into depression as they wrestle with this identity crisis. Um, but nothing seems to give a lasting fulfilment. And often this outward show of identifying as a, a certain gender or with a certain cause is just a facade, concealing an inner ordeal of an empty identity crisis. Now, for us who are Christians, we have our identity in Jesus Christ. The Christian believes all people are made in the image of God. All people are born by the will of God, and thus all people have inerrant value and worth. What better place to find identity but in the image of God, being born by the will of God and having inerrant value and worth. The Christian also believes that all people are victims of sin. And the Christian also believes that all people are perpetrators of sin. Thus, all people are in need of a saviour. Now, all people have purpose under heaven, but that can only be realised if you call on the name of that saviour, who is Jesus Christ. And once you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, your identity crisis ends, because, as I've said, you find a new identity in Christ, an identity that holds purpose and meaning, value and worth, and he will direct your life to a life worth living. Abimelech identified himself with his mother's blood, with his Canaanite ancestry, but he also identified himself with his father's position and power. And so we've got a duality going on in this guy. And so was birthed a man with selfish ambition, a lust for power and control, a narcissistic temperament, a lack of empathy or, or guilt, all clinical traits of a psychopath. In short, this guy is a little bit messed up. Anyway, Abimelech a purpose to satisfy his lustful power by becoming a king. And so he embarks on a political campaign to get elected. And any political campaign starts at grassroots level. You First of all, you speak to those who are card-carrying supporters and you draw support from those who have undivided loyalty to you. And then from that secure base, you seek to enlarge your influence so that a momentum towards election can be gathered. And Abimelech has a grassroots beginning when he calls a meeting with his Canaanite family. He probably lays them some food, speaks well of all he meets, endears himself to his family. And then he says, 
please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Now, if somebody has perhaps a different translation, say, for example, the ESV, it doesn't say men of Shechem. It says leaders of Shechem, which is actually a better translation. What uh, Abimelech is doing is he's gathering support from his family who live in Shechem and then saying, can you go to speak to the leaders of Shechem to enlarge my influence and carry my case that I should become king? And his argument is, which is better for you, that all the 70 sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. In other words, is it better having 70 jewels rule over you or one Canaanite? And that seems to be a very strong argument. And that language, remember, I am your bone and your flesh, that's very reminiscent, reminiscent of that language Adam used on meeting Eve. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Abimelech is effectively saying, I'm married to you. And I guess Abimelech is clearly a persuasive orator and he wins over his mother's brothers and they in turn champion Abimelech and his cause to the leaders of Shechem. So then there's a town meeting and the leaders of Shechem all vote Abimelech and they say, uh, uh, and we are told, their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he is our brother. So the people vote for Abimelech based on his family ties based upon his Canaanite connection. And it's notable that they vote upon him because of his, his bloodline, not because of his character. And you are always on dangerous ground when you ignore character when choosing a leader. A man may come from good family, but has he been tested and tried in the fire of God's purification? Character is fundamentally important when you're looking to a leader. Paul writes a number of times in his letters concerning the character of elders and deacons. He even exhorts that they are to be tested in 1 Timothy 3.10. So no such test seems to be levied against Abimelech in his character. They just seem to like the cut of his jib and they say he is our brother. Now any political campaign needs funding. I looked it up and would you believe the 2020 American presidential election cost $14 billion? $14 billion. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, the Abimelech for King campaign cost a whole lot less. Abimelech for King campaign cost 70 shekels of silver, we're told in this passage. And having received funding from the leaders of Shechem, um, Abimelech hires worthless and reckless men, we're told. Doesn't sound too healthy. These are idle and worthless men, devoid of wisdom and violent in nature. They're basically rent-a-mob. Rent-a-mob. And this is when it becomes clear that this is not a campaign, but a coup. This is not power through voting. This is going to be power through violence. And verse 9 records Abimelech's assassination of his brothers. And the manner of their death is very telling. We are told they were killed on one stone. So this is not a lightning attack on unsuspecting victims. This is a cold, calculated execution in the public, each brother, one by one, probably being beheaded on this stone. This is a brutal act of murder, designed to foster terror. And thus Abimelech begins his reign by controlling people through fear. 
Who dares oppose a man who acts with such cold-hearted cruelty? And what is even worse, not a single son of Jeroboam showed any sign of wanting to be king. But I guess Abimelech must have feared them enough to act as he did. And so following this public execution, the kingmakers of Shechem coronate their murderous leader. They crown a tyrant. And you just think, what are you doing? He's just butchered his own flesh and blood. Blood. You are crowning a monster to be king. And yet somehow they just go forward with this. Now, following on from this, um, the one surviving son of Jeroboam, the youngest son, Jotham, goes up to uh, the top of a mountain and gives a, a, um, gives a parable. He speaks to the men of Shechem. Let's read uh, verse seven there. Now, when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out and said to them. Now, one of Gideon's 70 sons had hidden and, and he'd escaped Abimelech's massacre. And it seems that this man is a godly man and he decides to speak against Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And this is not out of a ranting vengeance but more of a righteously inspired indignation, I'd say. And he goes up to the top of Mount Gerizim and he calls out to the leaders of Shechem. And there's a natural amphitheatre there where they can be heard. Now, the setup here is you've got two mountains. You've got Mount Ebal and you've got Mount Gerizim. And in the valley in between is where the city of Shechem is. So on the top of Mount Gerizim, he can call out and people would be able to hear. These are the two mountains um, where the Israelites stood on both mountains to ratify the covenant uh, back in Joshua 8. And half the tribes of Israel stood on Mount Ebal and they proclaimed the blessings Israel would receive for observing the covenant. And then half the tribes of Israel stood on Mount Gerizim and they proclaimed the curses Israel would incur for not observing the covenant. And I think it's telling that Jotham chose to stand on Mount Gerizim where the curses were pronounced because it is from that mountain that he speaks forth a parable, but he also speaks forth a prophetic curse upon Shechem and upon Abimelech. So let's read the parable. Carrying on from verse 7, we read, And he said to them, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honour God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the parable speaks of the trees looking to establish a king over them. And they look at three candidates in turn. And each of these candidates are fruit bearing, worthy candidates. But after these three candidates decline the offer of kingship, the trees turn to the brambles, which are neither fruit bearing or worthy. And the brambles accept the kingship uh, uh, with pride, uh, self-importance and an overinflated threat. 
Now the first tree is the olive tree and the olive tree produces oil. Oil is used to anoint the priesthood and the lampstand of the tabernacle and oil is used to refresh the skin and the food of men. Uh, and so to become king over the trees would be a demotion. So the olive tree says, should I cease giving my oil which they, with which they honour God and men and go sway over the trees? The second tree they go to to offer the kingship is the fig tree. And the fig tree produces fruit. And uh, not only does it produce fruit, it produces fruit twice, sometimes three times a year. And figs are sweet, whether fresh or dried. So again, for the fig tree to become king over the trees would be a demotion. So the fig tree says, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over the trees? So the third candidate they go to is the vine. And the vine, of course, produces grapes, which can be fermented into wine. And wine is used uh, to, in service to God through offerings and festal ceremonies. And also wine gladdens the heart of man, we're told in Psalm 104. And again, for the vine to become king over the trees would be a demotion. So the vine says, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and man and go sway over the trees? So with these three worthy candidates rejecting the kingship, the trees start scraping the barrel and the trees repeat their offer to the brambles. Brambles produce nothing of value, they're just thorns. They offer no shade, they are worthless as timber and if anything they're a danger because they are a risk to farmers as they can catch fire and destroy a crop. Yet the brambles accept the offer and become king and they make a proud boast that they can't fulfil. Come, take shelter in my shade. Brambles offer no shade whatsoever, yet they say to the trees, come and I'll offer you shade. And then the brambles make a lofty threat, which they can fulfil. If not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So the three worthy trees speak of the 70 worthy sons of Gideon, all of which would have been good candidates for a king. But the unworthy brambles speak of the unworthy Abimelech, a king with proud boasts he cannot fulfil and lofty threats which he can fulfil. So Jotham then speaks and gives his interpretation of the parable. So reading on from verse 16 we read, now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought, you, uh, fought for you, risked his life and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled. And he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So in short, what he's saying here is, by rising up and killing the house of Gideon on one stone, then crowning Abimelech king over them. The leaders of Shechem have either acted righteously or acted unrighteously. They've either acted in truth and sincerity or not in truth and sincerity. 
And he says, if you've acted in righteousness, rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if you have acted in unrighteousness, if you have not acted in truth and sincerity, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. And of course, it is clear that Shechem has not acted in righteousness, nor has Abimelech. They have acted with murderous treacherousy. They have financed the assassination of the family of Gideon, the same Gideon who delivered not only Israel, but this Canaanite city from the Midianites. Prophetically, Jotham is stating that Shechem will be burnt up and destroyed. Their bramble king will be the death of them. And having made this prophetic indictment against Shechem and Abimelech, Jotham, uh, Jotham flees to Beer to a place of hiding, presumably for the next three years, which is the reign of Abimelech. And when I think about these things, I think about when a church is in need of new leadership, you should never crown the only one available to fill the vacuum. You should always seek the most worthy candidate. The one proven to bear fruit and is serving God already, like the olive tree, like the fig tree, like the vine. That person needs to be led by God to that role of leadership, not led by the promise of position or power or wealth. Again, when it comes to choosing a leader, character matters. OK, so now we read in verse 22 of uh, chapter 9 of Judges after Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years three years he reigned the Lord permitted uh, uh, Abimelech to reign for that period of time and that word reign there is is the word not used of a king reigning but of a ruler and so what the author is indicating is that God did not accept Abimelech as king and any true leader needs to be raised up and established by God the Lord had raised up six judges in Israel's history to this point. Yet Abimelech is neither a judge nor a king. He is a tyrant and his reign is marked more by oppression than by peace. So carrying on, let's just read the next few verses. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided them, him in killing his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by that, them along that way, and it was told, Abimelech. So we're told that a God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And God uses a demon to accomplish his purposes. Now God is not the author of evil, but he does have power over all things to accomplish his purposes. And here God is working to accomplish a number of purposes. Uh, God is a great economist when it comes to time. He doesn't just do one thing, he does multiple things at the same time. And what he's doing in these events, is he's bringing to uh, justice the children is bringing, sorry, bringing justice to the children of Jeroboam, who were wrongly killed. He's going to bring judgment to Abimelech. He's also working to bring judgment to Shechem. But of course, he's also creating a historical record to teach both Israel and the church. 
And this spirit of ill will caused the leaders of Shechem to put men on the top of the mountains who would lie in wait to ambush people on the trade routes. And this would deprive Abimelech of taxes and revenue. And so we see that the leaders of Shechem are defying their king. There's a friction between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And really, there is no way, no way that this is going to end well. Shechem have seen how this tyrant executed his half-brothers. What makes them think they will, they will be dealt with any less harshly when Abimelech finds out they have double-crossed him? This is only going to go in one direction, and that is down. Now we get introduced to a new man, a man called Gael. Gael. Let's read from verse 26. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So they went out into the fields and gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and made merry. And they went into the house of their god and they ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerobah, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Habor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So this man Gael and his brothers come to Shechem, and the spirit of ill will has caused Shechem to have fallen out of love with Abimelech. And suddenly they see a new candidate, a candidate that can help them get rid of Abimelech. And of course, Abimelech is half Canaanite, but here we have Gael, and he's a hundred percent pure blood Canaanite. And so we read the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. We find that Shechem had put confidence in a new man. And Gael's feeling pretty good about himself. And so he decides to throw a party. He and his family go into the vineyards, they gather grapes, they trod them in the wine press and they made some wine. And then we're told they made merry, i.e. they throw a party. Now I don't know about you, but that seems like a lot of hard work to when you want to throw a party to actually go pick the grapes, tread the grapes and make wine. But uh, I'm guessing there's no threshers about in those days, so they've got to go the long way round to make some wine. So Gaal and his parties throw a party, so his friends throw a party and... Uh, You've heard of a Tupperware party? Well, this is basically a we hate Abimelech party. And as they get tanked up, they start bad mouthing Abimelech. Who is this Abimelech? Why should Shechem serve him? And alcohol has that effect, doesn't it? It creates bravado where there was none. And it makes people bolder than they truly are or indeed should be. And as they're drunkenly railing against Abimelech, they mention one of the leaders of Shechem, a man named Zebul. And Zebul is in the pocket of Abimelech. And this appears to be common knowledge because Gaal and his cronies badmouth Zebul in the same mouth that they badmouth Abimelech. Now, we read in verse 30, When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And so word gets back to Zebul that his name is being dragged through the mud and nobody likes to have their name bad mouth, do they? Gaal is all mouth about his ability to remove Abimelech from power. 
and Zabul's anger is aroused. He doesn't like being badmouthed. So what does he do? Well, let's carry on reading. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. Now therefore get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be, as soon as the sun is up in the morning, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And as soon as he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and laid in wait against Shechem in four companies. And when Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Gaal spoke again and said, See, men are coming down from the centre of the land, and another company is coming from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now, with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight them now. So Abimelech, under advice, received from Zebul, raises his army, divides his army into four companies, and lies in wait outside Shechem on the mountains. Morning comes, Gaal rises, probably a little worse for wear after the party from the night before, and as he stands at the city gate, so Abimelech and his army begins to descend the mountains. And naturally alarmed, Gaal points this out to Zebul, and Zebul, who is probably relishing every moment, dismisses the notion. In effect, he says, yeah, you're seeing shadows. It's the alcohol speaking. So Gaal rubs his eyes, takes a second look, and he is now persuaded. At which point Zebul, in effect, says, not so big now, are you, mister? And what he says, in fact, is, where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? And Gaal, to his credit, doesn't cut his losses and run. He goes out to meet Abimelech with an army of men from Shechem. So let's read on. Verse 39. So Gaal went out, with, uh, went out, leading the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled from him and many fell wounded even to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Aramah and Zebul drove out Gaal and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So Abimelech and Gaal come and meet outside the city of Shechem and Abimelech chases Gaal and his army back to the gates of Shechem. Gaal and the remainder of his army barricade themselves in the city uh, uh, but not before many people have been wounded and left dead and dying outside. Abimelech can't get into the city because it's been walled up so he retreats to Aramah which is where he rules from and Zebul is able to drive out Gaal and his brothers from Shechem. They're, they're losers, they're not going to accomplish the goal that we want, we're probably better off with Abimelech so we'll get rid of Gaal, Gaal and perhaps we can re-find peace with Abimelech. And we don't hear of Gaal again. We don't know what happened to him, where he went. But he is he's yesterday's news. But Abimelech is not finished. The night passes. The dust settles. 
and the people of Shechem appear to have believed that the matter was over. Abimelech has reasserted his control so life would return to normal. But the plain fact is that they were stupid to think that there would be no repercussions from a tyrant like Abimelech. Let's read what happened next. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies this time, and laid in wait in the field. And he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Now when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god of Bereth, and it was told Abimelech, that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees, took it and laid it on his shoulders. Then he said to the people who were with him, What, have you, what you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bough, followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire, above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died about a thousand men and women. Now cities in the ancient world were walled fortresses. Inside the city people lived and slept and in typically inside a city you had an inner fortress, a tower, where people could run to in the event of a breach of wall by attackers. It was the last bastion of protection, a stronghold. But the fields and the cattle were maintained outside the city wall. So every day people would rise and they would leave the city to tend their cattle and their fields. Now Abimelech took his army a second time and this time he divided the army into three companies and he lay in wait outside the city of Shechem. Morning comes and out come the citizens of Shechem to work the land to tend their cattle. But Abimelech and his armies rise and attack the people. And their strategy is twofold. The first stage is that one company rushes to the city gate, in effect to keep it from closing and preventing the people from retreating. And the second stage is the other two companies fall on the people in the field and massacre them. That uh, murderous trait that we see Abimelech has spread to his army and they kill all the people in the field from Shechem. Now following this, the combined forces of all three companies enter the city and lay it to waste, killing and destroying everything in their wake. A complete bloodbath. And then what they do is they sow, sow the city with salt. Now, sowing a city with salt is a symbolic act, turning a place into what is effectively a salty wasteland. And Abimelech's intent was to curse Shechem so that it would never be rebuilt uh, by sowing salt in the city. This was ultimately failed, though, because later on in 1 Kings 12, we read about the city of Shechem, obviously rebuilt and doing well. And it's where Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, would go to have his coronation. So the last stronghold, the last uh, bastion for people to run to uh, when the, the city had been breached is this tower, the Tower of Shechem, which is also the temple of the god Bereth. 
And so we have a thousand people run to this temple to take refuge. And Abimelech takes an axe, cuts down branches from a tree, and then he bids his men to do likewise. And they carry all this wood to the Tower of Shechem. And then Abimelech starts a fire that burns the tower and the people inside. And can you imagine the horror as a thousand people die, screaming in terror as smoke and flame laps the building? Abimelech, the monster, strikes again. And in this, the prophecy of Jotham that we spoke of earlier literally comes true. Fire does come forth from Abimelech and engulfs and devours the people of Shechem. Thus God's judgment falls on Shechem and another Canaanite stronghold is destroyed. But we still have judgment against Abimelech to be fulfilled. So let's read on uh, from verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city and all the men and women and all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the tower of the top of the tower. So at the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So Abimelech's lust for blood is not quenched. He presses on 10 miles to the northeast of Shechem to a city called Thebes probably an ally of Shechem, who supported their revolt against Abimelech. And at Thebes, we have the beginnings of a replay of events from Shechem. Abimelech, Abimelech attacks, the people flee to the city stronghold or tower, and Abimelech purposes to burn it with fire once more. But Abimelech's plans are halted in dramatic style. And so let's read about what happens next. Verse 53, but a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armour bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Lest men say of me, a woman killed me, killed him. So his young men thrust him through and he died. So here we see the death of Abimelech. So Abimelech's plans, as I say, are halted by this certain woman. And this certain woman drops an upper millstone from the tower and it strikes Abimelech and crushes his head. Now, an upper millstone is basically a kitchen utensil. You would have an upper millstone and a lower millstone with which you would grind wheat for flour. And so here we have Abimelech killed by a kitchen utensil, which is uh, not a great reputation to, uh, to have. Uh, a modern equivalent would be a Kenwood mixer. And who would like to have the reputation that you were killed by a Kenwood mixer? I don't think anybody would like that very much. But, and who this certain woman was, we have no idea. She's not mentioned. And why she hiked a Kenwood mixer up the stairs to the top of this tower is a greater mystery. But I do know that if I saw a Kenwood mixer hurtling towards me from a great height, I know it's not going to be good. And when... Um, Abimelech saw this um, upper millstone coming towards him. He knew it was curtains. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I was thinking about this, it kind of played in my mind a bit like a Roadrunner and a Wiley e. Coyote Looney Tunes cartoon, where Abimelech is Wiley e. Coyote and the certain woman is the Roadrunner. And Wiley e. Coyote has chased the runner to the tower 
and as he frantically gathers wood to start a fire, the roadrunner pushes a Kenwood mixer out of the top window. Wally Coyote looks up, sees this Kenwood mixer hurtling towards him, and he then looks at the camera with that look of resigned defeat and holds up a sign that says, Gulp, uh, before being pummeled into the ground. Anyway, uh, there lies Abimelech, head crushed, hemorrhaging blood, and his dying thought is his legacy. What will I be remembered by? What will people say of me? And he, his, his principal thought is he doesn't want to be, be known that a woman killed him. As if that's the worst thing you can say about him, that a woman killed him. The guy is a mass murdering psychopath. Uh, and yet he's worried that he's going to die with the reputation of being killed by a woman. So Abimelech's armor bearer draws his sword, thrusts it through, and Abimelech, despite, and, and, and Abimelech dies. And uh, despite, you know, Abimelech's narcissistic concern about his legacy, he will always be known as the guy who was killed by a certain woman, a woman who dropped a kitchen utensil on his head and killed him. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. There is a permanent record uh, in the word of God about the way that this man died. And so we close the chapter from verse 55. And when the man of Israel, men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed, every man to his own place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobal. So the days of the Bramble King come to an end. The men of Israel depart back home. God has judged Shechem. God has judged Abimelech. God has avenged the 70 sons of Jerobal. And God has fulfilled the prophetic curse proclaimed by Jotham. Now I've got one more verse I'd like to read to you. One closing thought I'd like to leave with you. And this is from Romans 6 verse 16. I wonder whether you could turn please in your Bibles to Romans 6 verse 16. This is our last verse of the morning. Romans 6 verse 16. And there it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. The leaders of Shechem presented themselves as slaves to Abimelech. They rejected the true king Yahweh and they were ruled by a usurper, a tyrant, a monster. If Jesus Christ does not rule your life, your sinful nature will. Your flesh is a usurper and a tyrant and a monster. It may promise much, but will only bring death, much in the same way that Abimelech only brought death. And in churches, if you do not follow leaders who direct you to the kingship of Jesus, you will fall under leadership of those who are controlling and destructive, like Abimelech. Nature abhors a vacuum. Gideon left the nation of Israel in a spiritual vacuum, and that vacuum was filled by the Baal Bereth, and his sponsored man, Abimelech. Israel were once oppressed from without by Midian. Now Israel were oppressed from within 
by Abimelech. There is a spiritual need within every man, and if this is not fed by the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible study, worship and fellowship, you will be oppressed from the world from without and from the flesh within. You don't want a bramble king ruling over you. You want the king of kings ruling over you. Be sure to make him your master, not your sinful nature. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of this account. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise in who we choose to be those who rule over us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be those who are active in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study, worship and fellowship, so that, Lord, we be sure that we feed the spirit and the king of kings rules us. And so the world and the flesh is not allowed to have a foothold in our lives. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.